Welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is your host, D.B. Spitzer. We are in week two of the collected works of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, yeah, so we're going to have that going on. And here's the thing. It's all going to drop on Tuesday. All of it. Black Clock Audio Tales drops on Tuesday. It's going to be a week worth of stuff, but it's all going to drop on Tuesday. And I'll step it out on Tuesday. So your podcast player will know what order to play it in instead of trying to play it all at once. So yeah, this is going to be interesting. We're going to see how this works. And let us know if you like it, if you hate it, if you want us to switch any other way, if you want us to do things any other way. And yeah, this is going to be the intro for all week. So thank you so much for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans Holiday Special and Zero Episode Articulate Warbling. Gonna try and come up with some other stuff. Maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe, maybe you have an idea and you want to contact pgttcm.com and contact us there. Or you want to contact us on Facebook at pgttcm.com or Black Clock Audio Tales or we're on, on Facebook, we're People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. And you can always contact Zach from Articulate Warbling by checking out Articulate Warbling. And Dave's got something for Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, but I can't remember the thing for it right now. But hey, uh, I'll let you know once we get closer to episode one coming out on that. As always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Look cool with a vintage-looking t-shirt from your favorite cult film from the 80s and 90s. Maybe the 70s, too, hey. And what about those bunny slippers? Keeping your feet warm, keeping your feet dry. Well, I mean, don't go walking around in novelty slippers outside. You're going to get your feet wet. What? Stay inside. Stay warm. Watch some cult films. BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com a sponsor of PGTTCM and Black Clock Audio Tales since, I don't know, 2017? Something like that. All right. On with the show, Edgar Allan Poe. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and PGTTCM.com. And, hey, keep the show going. Donate a buck or five to PayPal.com slash... No, PayPal.me slash PGTTCM or going to pgttcm.podbean.com and clicking the patron button and donating something. We'll figure out something in the future for, I don't know, donating more than a dollar, but if you donate a dollar, we'll say your name and contact me so I know that you did it because, I don't know, for some reason I'm not getting messages about that kind of stuff. And if you've donated money and I didn't say your name, Message me on Facebook, and I'll say your name, and be like, hey, this person donated money. Anyway, Ed Allan Poe, here we go. Section 8 The Fall of the House of Usher Sancur est un lut suspendu, citat quion le touche il raison de Berengar. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country 
and at length found myself, as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I knew not how it was, but with the first glimpse of the building a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable, because poetic sentiment, with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the after-dream of the reveler upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life, the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it? I paused to think. What was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the house of Usher? It was a mystery all unsoluble, nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded upon me as I pondered. I was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that while beyond doubt there are combinations of very simple natural objects which have the power of thus affecting us. Still the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth. It was possible, I reflected, that a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene, of the details of the picture, would be sufficient to modify or perhaps to annihilate its capacity for sorrowful impression. And, acting upon this idea, I reined my horse to the precipitous brink of a black and lurid tarn that lay an unruffled luster by the dwelling and gazed down, but with a shudder even more thrilling than before, upon the remodeled and inverted images of the gray sedge and the ghastly tree-stems and the vacant and eye-like windows. Nevertheless, in this mansion of gloom, I now proposed to myself a sojourn of some weeks. Its proprietor, Roderick Usher, had been one of my boon companions in boyhood, but many years had elapsed since our last meeting. A letter, however, had lately reached me in a distant part of the country. A letter from him, which in its wildly importunate nature had admitted of no other than a personal reply. The M.S. gave evidence of nervous agitation. The writer spoke of acute bodily illness, of a mental disorder which oppressed him, and an earnest desire to see me as his best and, indeed, his only personal friend, with a view of attempting, by the cheerfulness of my society, some alleviation of his malady. It was the manner in which all this and much more was said. It was the apparent heart that went with his request, which allowed me no room for hesitation, and I accordingly obeyed forthwith. 
what I still considered a very singular summons. Although as boys we had been even intimate associates, yet I really knew little of my friend. His reserve had been always excessive and habitual. I was aware, however, that his very ancient family had been noted, time out of mind, for a peculiar sensibility of temperament, displaying itself through long ages in many works of exalted art, and manifested, of late, in repeated deeds of munificent yet unobtrusive charity, as well as in a passionate devotion to the interests, perhaps even more than to the orthodox and easily recognizable beauties of musical science. I had learned, too, the very remarkable fact that the stem of the usher race, all time-honored as it was, had put forth at no period any enduring branch. In other words, that the entire family lay in the direct line of descendant, and had always, with very trifling and very temporary variation, so lain. It was this deficiency I considered, while running over the thought, the perfect keeping of the character of the premises, with the accredited character of the people, while speculating upon the possible influence which the one, in this long lapse of centuries, might have exercised upon the other. It was this deficiency, perhaps, of collateral issue, and the consequent undeviating transmission, from sire to son, of the patrimony of the name which had at length so identified the two as to merge the original title of the estate in the quaint and equivocal appellation of the House of Usher, an appellation which seemed to include in the minds of the peasantry who used it both the family and the family mansion. I have said that the sole effect of my somewhat childish experiment, that of looking down within the tarn, had been to deepen the first singular impression. There can be no doubt that the consciousness of the rapid increase of my superstition, for why should I not so term it, served mainly to accelerate the increase itself. Such I have long known is the paradoxical law of all sentiments having terror as a basis. And it might have been for this reason only, that when I again uplifted my eyes to the house itself from its image in the pool, there grew in my mind a strange fancy, a fancy so ridiculous indeed, that I but mention it to show the vivid force of the sensations which oppressed me, I had so worked upon my imagination as reality to believe that about the whole mansion and domain there hung an atmosphere peculiar to themselves and their immediate vicinity, an atmosphere which had no affinity with the air of heaven, but which had reeked up from the decayed trees and the gray wall and a silent tarn, a pestilent and mystic vapor, dull, sluggish, faintly discernible and leaden-hued. Shaking off from my spirit what must have been a dream, I scan more narrowly the real aspect of the building. Its principal features seem to be that of an excessive antiquity. The discoloration of ages had been great. Minute fungi overspread the whole exterior, hanging in a fine tangled webwork from the eaves. Yet all this was apart from any extraordinary dilapidation. 
no portion of the masonry had fallen, and there appeared to be a wild inconsistency between its still perfect adaptation of parts and the crumbling condition of the individual stones. In this there was much that reminded me of the spacious totality of old woodwork, which has rotted for long years in some neglected vault. With no disturbance from the breath of the external air, beyond this indication of extensive decay, however, the fabric gave little token of instability. Perhaps the eye of a scrutinizing observer might have discovered a barely perceptible fissure, which, extending from the roof of the building in front, made its way down the wall in a zigzag direction, until it became lost in the sullen waters of the tarn. Noticing these things, I rode over a short causeway to the house. A servant-in-waiting took my horse, and I entered the gothic archway of the hall. A valet of stately step thence conducted me in silence through many dark and intricate passages in my progress to the studio of his master. Much that I encountered on the way contributed, I know not how, to heighten the vague sentiments of which I have already spoken, while the objects around me, while the carvings of the ceilings, the somber tapestries of the walls, the ebon blackness of the floors, phantasmagoric armorial trophies which rattled as I strode, were but matters to which, or to such as which, I had been accustomed from my infancy. While I hesitated not to acknowledge how familiar was all this, I still wondered to find how unfamiliar were the fancies which ordinary images were stirring up. On one of the staircases I met the physician of the family. His countenance, I thought, wore a mingled expression of low cunning and perplexity. He accosted me with trepidation and passed on. The valet now threw open a door and ushered me into the presence of his master. The room in which I found myself was very large and lofty. The windows were long, narrow, and pointed, and so vast a distance from the black oaken floor as to be altogether inaccessible from within. Feeble gleams of encrimsoned light made their way through the trellised panes and served to render sufficiently distant the more prominent object around. The eye, however, struggled in vain to reach the remoter angles of the chamber or the recesses of the vaulted and fretted ceiling. Dark draperies hung upon the walls. The general furniture was profuse, comfortless, antique, and tattered. Many books and musical instruments lay scattered about, but failed to give any vitality to the scene. I felt that I breathed an atmosphere of sorrow, an air of stern, deep, and irredeemable gloom hung over and pervaded all. Upon my entrance, Usher arose from a sofa on which he had been lying at full length, and greeted me with a vivacious warmth which had much in it. I at first thought of an overdone cordiality, of the constrained effort of the ennui man of the world. A glance, however, at his countenance convinced me of his perfect sincerity. We sat down, and from some moments, while he spoke not, I gazed upon him with a feeling half of pity, half of awe. Surely man had never before so terribly altered in so brief a period as had Roderick Usher. It was with difficulty that I could bring myself to admit the identity of the wan being before me 
with the companion of my early boyhood, yet the character of his face had been at all times remarkable. A cadaverous of complexion, an eye large, liquid, and luminous beyond comparison, lips somewhat thin and very pallid, but of a surprisingly beautiful curve, a nose of a delicate Hebrew model, but with a breadth of nostril unusual in similar formations, a finely molded chin, speaking in its want of prominence, of a want of moral energy, hair of a more than web-like softness and tenuity, these features with an inordinate expansion above the regions of the temple, made up altogether a countenance not easy to be forgotten. And now, in the mere exaggeration of the prevailing character of these features, and of the expression they were wont to convey, lay so much of change that I doubted to whom I spoke. The now ghastly pallor of the skin, and the now miraculous luster of the eye, above all things startled and even awed me. The silken hair, too, had been suffered to grow all unheeded and as, in its wild gossamer texture, it floated rather than fell about the face. I could not, even with effort, connect its arabesque expression with any idea of simple humanity. In the manner of my friend I was at once struck with an incoherence, an inconsistency, and I soon found this to arise from a series of feeble and futile struggles to overcome an habitual trepidancy an excessive nervous agitation. For something of this nature I had indeed been prepared, no less by his letter, than by reminiscence of certain boyish traits, and by conclusions deduced from his peculiar physical conformation and temperament. His action was alternately vivacious and sullen. His voice varied rapidly from a tremulous indecision, when the animal spirits seemed utterly in abeyance, to the species of energetic concision, that abrupt, weighty, unhurried, and hollow-sounding enunciation, that leaden self-balance and perfectly modulated guttural utterance, which may be observed in the lost drunkard or the irreclaimable eater of opium, during the periods of his most intense excitement. It was thus that he spoke of the object of my visit of his earnest desire to see me, and of the solace he expected me to afford him. He entered at some length into what he conceived to be the nature of his malady. It was, he said, a constitutional and family evil, and one for which he despaired to find a remedy, a mere nervous affection, he immediately added, which would undoubtedly soon pass off. It displayed itself in a host of unusual sensations. Some of these, as he detailed them, interested and bewildered me, although perhaps the terms and the general manager of the narration had their weight. He suffered much from a morbid acuteness of the senses. The most insipid food was alone endurable. He could wear only garments of certain texture. The odors of all flowers were oppressive. His eyes were tortured by even a faint light, and there were but peculiar sounds and these from stringed instruments which did not inspire him with horror. To an anomalous species of terror I found him a burdened slave. I shall perish, said he. I must perish in this deplorable folly. 
Thus, thus, and not otherwise, shall I be lost. I dread the event of the future not in themselves, but in their results. I shudder at the thought of any, even the most trivial incident, which may operate upon this intolerable agitation of soul. I have, indeed, no abhorrence of danger except in its absolute effect, in terror, in this unnerved, in this pitiable condition. I feel that the period will sooner or later arrive when I must abandon life and reason together in some struggle with the grim phantasm fear. I learn, moreover, at intervals and through broken and equivocal hints, another singular feature of his mental condition. He was enchained by certain superstitious impressions of the dwelling which he tenanted and whence for many years he had never ventured forth. In regard to an influence whose superstitious force was conveyed in terms too shadowy here to be restated, an influence which some peculiarities in the mere form and substance of his family mansion had by dint of long sufferance, he said, obtained over his spirit, an effect which the physique of all the gray walls and turrets and the dim tarn into which they all looked down had at length brought upon the morale of his existence. He admitted, however, although with hesitation, that much of the peculiar gloom which thus affected him could be traced to a more natural and far more palpable origin, to the severe and long-continued illness, indeed to the evidently approaching dissolution of a tenderly beloved sister, his sole companion for long years, his last and only relative on earth. Her decease, he said, with a bitterness which I can never forget, would leave him, him the hopeless and the frail, the last of the ancient race of the ushers. While he spoke, the Lady Madeline, for so she was called, passed slowly through a remote portion of the apartment, and without having noticed my presence, disappeared. I regarded her with an utter astonishment not unmingled with dread, and yet I found it impossible to account for such feelings. A sensation of stupor oppressed me as my eyes followed her retreating steps. When a door at length closed upon her, my glance sought instinctively and eagerly the countenance of her brother. But he had buried his face in his hands, and I could only perceive that a far more than ordinary wanness had overspread the emaciated fingers through which trickled many passionate tears. The disease of the Lady Madeline had long baffled the skill of her physicians. A settled apathy, a gradual wasting away of the person, and frequent, although transient, affections of a partially catalytical character were the unusual diagnosis. Hitherto she had steadily borne up against the pressure of her malady, and had not betaken herself finally to bed. But on the closing in of the evening of my arrival at the house, she succumbed, as her brother told me at night, with inexpressible agitation, to the prostrating power of the destroyer, and I learned that the glimpse I had obtained of her person would thus probably be the last I should attain, that the lady, at least while living, would be seen by me no more. 
For several days ensuing, her name was unmentioned by either Usher or myself, and during this period I was busied in earnest endeavors to alleviate the melancholy of my friend. We painted and read together, or I listened as if in a dream, to the wild improvisations of his speaking guitar, and thus, as a closer and still closer intimacy admitted me more unreservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the futility of all attempt at cheering a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality, poured forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe in one unceasing radiation of gloom. I shall ever bear about me a memory of the many solemn hours I thus spent alone with the master of the house of Usher. Yet I should fail in any attempt to convey an idea of the exact character of the studies, or of the occupation, in which he involved me or led me the way. An excited and highly distempered ideality threw a sulphurous luster over all. His long, improvised dirges will ring forever in my ears. Among other things, I hold painfully in mind a certain singular perversion and amplification of the wild air of the last waltz of von Weber. From the paintings over which his elaborate fancy brooded, and which grew touch by touch, into vagueness and which I shuddered the more thrillingly, because I shuddered, knowing not why. From these paintings, vivid as their images now are before me, I would in vain endeavor to adduce more than a small portion which should lie within the compass of merely written words. By the utter simplicity, by the nakedness of his designs, he arrested and overawed attention. If ever mortal painted an idea, that mortal was Roderick Usher. For me, at least, in the circumstances then surround me, there arose, out of the pure abstractions which the hypochondriac contrived to throw upon his canvas, an intensity of intolerable awe. No shadow of which felt I, ever yet, in the contemplation of the certainly glowing yet too concrete reveries of Fuseli, one of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend partaking not so rigidly of the spirit of abstraction, may be shadowed forth, although feebly in words. A small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and rectangular vault or tunnel, with low walls, smooth, white, and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceedingly depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent, and no torch or other artificial source of light was discernible, yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout and bathed the whole in a ghastly and inappropriate splendor. I have just spoken of that morbid condition of the auditory nerve, which rendered all music intolerable to the sufferer. With the exception of certain effects of stringed instruments, it was perhaps the narrow limits to which he thus confined himself upon the guitar, which gave birth in great measure to the fantastic character of his performances. But the fervid facility of his impromptus 
could not be so accounted for. They must have been and were in the notes as well as in the words of his wild fantasias, for he not unfrequently accompanied himself with rhymed verbal improvisations. The result of that intense mental collidus and concentration to which I have previously alluded is observable only in particular moments of the highest artificial excitement. The words of one of these rhapsodies I have easily remembered. I was, perhaps, more forcibly impressed with it as he gave it, because in the under or mystic current of its meaning, I fancied that I perceived, and for the first time, a full consciousness on the part of Usher, of the tottering of his lofty reason upon her throne. The verses, which were entitled, The Haunted Palace, ran very nearly, if not accurately, thus. In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace, reared its head. In the monarch thought's domination, it stood here. Never spread opinion over fabric half so fair. Banners yellow, glorious, golden, on its roof did float and flow. Thus all this was in the olden time long ago. And every gentle air that dallied in that sweet day, along the ramparts plumed and pallid, a winged odor went away. Wanderers in that happy valley, through two luminous windows saw, spirits moving musically to a lute's well-tuned law. Round about a throne were sitting, for by gone, the state his glory well befitting, the ruler of the realm was seen. And all with pearl and ruby glowing was the fair palace door, through which came floating, flowing, flowing, and sparkling evermore, a troop of echoes whose sweet duty was but to sing, in voices of surpassing beauty, the wit and wisdom of their king. But evil things in robes of sorrow assailed the monarch's high estate. Ah, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon him desolate. And round about his home the glory that blushed and bloomed is but a dim-remembered story of the old time entombed. And travelers now within that valley through the red litten windows, see vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody, while like a rapid, ghastly river, through the pale door a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh but smile no more. I well remember that suggestions arising from this ballad led us into a train of thought wherein there became manifest an opinion of ushers which I mention not so much on account of its novelty, for other men have thought thus, as on account of the pertinency with which he maintained it. This opinion, in its general form, was that of the sentience of all vegetable things. But in his disordered fancy the idea had assumed a more daring character, and trespassed under certain conditions upon the kingdom of inorganization. I lack words to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I have previously hinted, 
with the gray stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentence had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collocation of these stones, in the order of their arrangement as well as in that of the many fungi which overspread them, and the decayed trees which stood around, above all, in the long undisturbed endurance of this arrangement, and in its reduplication in the still waters of the tarn, its evidence, the evidence of the sentence, was to be seen, he said, and I here started as he spoke, in the gradual, yelt, certain condensation of an atmosphere of their own about the waters and the walls. The result was discoverable, he added, in that silent, yet importunate and terrible influence which for centuries had moldered the destinies of his family, and which made him what I now saw him, what he was. Such opinions need no comment, and I will make none. Our books, the books which for years had formed no small portion of the mental existence of the invalid, were, as might be supposed, in strict keeping with this character of phantasm. He poured together over such works as Vernat et Chestray, Grissant, The Bethlegger of Machalemi, The Heaven and Hell of Schwentborg, The Subterranean Voyage of Nicholas Klim by Holberg, The Chircancy of Robert Flood, of Jean de Inge, and de la Chambre, the journey into the blue distance of Terek, and the city of the sun, Campanella. One favorite volume was a small Octavio edition of Dictatorium, Inquisitorium, by the Dominican Emic de Goin, and there were passages of Pompeius Mela, about the old African satyrs and of Egyptians over which Usher would sit dreaming for hours. His chief delight, however, was found in the pursual of an exceedingly rare and curious book in Quattro Gothic, the Manual of a Forgotten Church, the Vigare Motorium Seculum Corum Estelle Magnetae. I could not help thinking of the wild ritual of this work, and of its probable influence upon the hypochondriac, when one evening, having informed me abruptly that the Lady Madeline, was no more. He stated his intention of preserving her corpse for a fortnight, previously to its final interment, in one of the numerous vaults within the main walls of the building. The worldly reason, however, assigned for this singular proceeding was one which I did not feel at liberty to dispute. The brother had been led to his resolution, so he told me, by consideration of the unusual character of the malady of the deceased of certain obtrusive and eager inquiries on the part of her medical men, and of the remote and exposed situation of the burial ground of the family. I will not deny that when I called to mind the sinister countenance of the person whom I met upon the staircase on the day of my arrival at the house, I had no desire to oppose what I regarded at best, but a harmless and by no means unnatural precaution. At the request of Usher, I personally aided him in the arrangements for the temporary entombment. The body having been encoffined, we two alone bore it to its rest. The vault in which we placed it, 
and which had been so long unopened that our torches half smothered in its oppressive atmosphere gave us little opportunity for investigation was small damp and entirely without means of admission for light lying at great depth immediately beneath that portion of the building in which was my own sleeping apartment it had been used apparently in more futile times for the worst purposes of a dojong keep and in later days as a place of deposit for powder or some other highly combustible substance as a portion of its floor and the whole interior of a long archway through which we reached it were carefully sheathed with copper the door of massive iron had been also similarly protected its immense weight caused an unusually sharp grating sound as it moved upon its hinges having deposited our mournful burden upon trestles within this region of horror we partially turned aside the yet unscrewed lid of the coffin and looked upon the face of the tenant a striking similitude between the brother and sister now first arrested my attention and usher divining perhaps my thought murmured out some words for which i learned that the deceased and himself had been twins and that sympathies of a scarcity intelligible nature had always existed between them our glances however rested not long upon the dead for we could not regard her unawed the disease which had thus entombed the lady in the maturity of youth had left as usual in all maladies of a strictly catacryptical character the mockery of a faint blush upon the bosom and the face and that suspiciously lingering smile upon the lip which is so terrible in death we replaced and screwed down the lid and having secured the door of iron made our way with toil into the scarcely less gloomy apartments of the upper portion of the house and now some days of bitter grief having elapsed an observable change came over the features of the mental disorder of my friend his ordinary manner had vanished his ordinary occupations were neglected or forgotten he roamed from chamber to chamber with hurried unequal and objectless step the pallor of his countenance assumed if possible a more ghastly hue but the luminous of his eye had utterly gone out the once occasional huskiness of his tone was heard no more and a tremulous quaver as if of extreme terror habitually characterized his utterances there were times indeed when i thought his unceasingly agitated mind was laboring with some oppressive secret to divulge which he struggled for the necessary courage at times again i was obliged to resolve all that into the mere inexplicable vagarities of madness for i beheld him gazing upon vacantly for long hours in an attitude of the profoundest attention as if listening to some imaginary sound it was no wonder that his condition terrified that it infected me i felt creeping upon me by slow yet certain degrees the wild influences of his own fantastic yet impressive superstitions it was especially upon retiring to bed late in the night of the seventh or eighth day after the placing of the lady madeline within the donjon that i experienced the full power of such feelings sleep came not near my couch 
while the hours waned and waned away i struggled to reason off the nervousness which had dominion over me i endeavored to believe that much if not all of what i felt was due to the bewildering influence of the gloomy furniture of the room of the dark and tattered draperies which tortured into motion by the breath of a rising tempest swayed fitfully to and fro upon the walls and rustled uneasily about the decorations of the bed but my efforts were fruitless an irrepressible tremor gradually pervaded my frame and at length there sat upon my very heart an incubus of utterly ceaseless alarm shaking this off with a gasp and a struggle i uplifted myself upon the pillows and peering earnestly within the intense darkness of the chamber hearkened i know not why except that an instinctive spirit prompted me to certain low and indefinite sounds which came through the pauses of the storm at long intervals i knew not whence overpowered by an intense sentiment of horror unaccountable yet unendurable i threw on my clothes with haste for i felt that i should sleep no more during the night and endeavored to arouse myself from the pitiable condition into which i had fallen by pacing rapidly to and fro through the apartment i had taken but few turns in this manner when a light step on an adjoining staircase arrested my attention i presently recognized it as that of usher in an instant afterward he rapped with a gentle touch at my door and entered bearing a lamp his countenance was unusual cadaverously wan but moreover there was a species of mad hilarity in his eyes and evidently restrained hysteria in his whole demeanor his air appalled me but anything was preferable to the solitude which i had so long endured and i even welcomed his presence as a relief eh, you have not seen it he said abruptly after having stared about him for some moments in silence you have not then seen it but stay you will thus speaking and having carefully shaded his lamp he hurried to one of the casements and threw it freely open to the storm the impetuous fury of the entering gust nearly lifted us from our feet it was indeed a tempestuous yet sternly beautiful night and one wildly singular in its terror and its beauty a whirlwind had apparently collected its force in our vicinity for there were frequent and violent alterations in the direction of the wind and the exceeding density did not prevent our perceiving this yet we had no glimpse of the moon or stars nor was there any flashing forth of the lightning but the under surfaces of the huge masses of agitated vapor as well as all terrestrial objects immediately around us were glowing in the unnatural light of a faintly luminous and distinctly visible gaseous exhalation which hung about and enshrouded the mansion you must not you shall not behold this said i shudderingly to usher as i led him with a gentle violence from the window to a seat these appearances which bewildered you are merely electrical phenomena not uncommon 
or it may be that they have their ghastly origin in the rank mismania of the tarn. Let us close this casement. The air is chilling and dangerous to your frame. Here is one of your favorite romances I will read, and you shall listen, and so we will pass away this terrible night together. The antique volume which I had taken up was The Mad Tryst of Sir Lancelot Canning, but I had called it a favorite of Usher's, more in sad jest than in earnest, for in truth there is little in its uncouth and unimaginative proxility which could have had interest for the lofty and spiritual ideality of my friend. It was, however, the only book immediately at hand, and I indulged a vague hope that the excitement which now agitated the hypochondriac might find relief, for the history of mental disorder is full of similar anomalies, even in the extremeness of the folly which I should read. Could I have judged, indeed, by the wild, overstrained air of vivacity with which he hearkened, or apparently hearkened, to the words of the tale, I might well have congratulated myself upon the success of my design. I had arrived at that well-known portion of the story, where Ethelred the hero of the tryst, having sought in vain for peaceable admission unto the dwelling of her hermit, proceeds to make good an entrance by force. Here it will be remembered the words of the narrative run thus. And Ethelred, who was by nature a doughty heart, and who was now mighty withal on account of the powerfulness of the wine which he had drunken, waited no longer to hold parley with the hermit, who, in sooth, was an obstinate and maliceable turn, but feeling the rain upon his shoulders, and fearing the rising of the tempest, uplifted his mace outright, and with blows made quickly room in the plankings of the door for his gauntleted hand, and now pulling therewith sturdily, he so cracked and ripped and tore all asunder, that the noise of the dry, hollow-sounding wood, alarmed and reverberated throughout the forest. At the termination of this sentence, I started for a moment, paused, for it appeared to me, although I at once concluded that my excited fancy had deceived me, it appeared to me that, from some very remote portion of the mansion, there came indistinctly to my ears what might have been, in its exact similarity of character, the echo, but a stifled and dull one certainly, of the very cracking and rippling sound which Sir Lancelot had so particularly described. It was beyond doubt the coincidence alone which had arrested my attention, for amid the rattling of the sashes of the casements and the ordinary commingled noises of the still-increasing storm, the sound in itself had nothing, surely, which should have interested or disturbed me. I continued the story. But the good champion, Ethelred, now entering within the door, was sore enraged and amazed to perceive no signal of the maliceful hermit, but, in the stead thereof, a dragon of a scaly and prodigious demeanor, and of a fiery tongue, which sate in guard before a palace of gold, with a floor of silver, and upon the wall there hung a shield of shining brass, with this legend in written, Who entereth herein a conqueror hath been? who slayeth the dragon, 
the shield he shall win. And Ethelred uplifted his mace and struck upon the head of the dragon, which fell before him, and gave up his pesky breath, with a shriek so horrid and harsh, and withal so piercing, that Ethelred had feigned to close his ears with his hands against the dreadful noise of it, the like whereof was never before heard. Here again I paused abruptly, and now with a feeling of wild amazement, for there could be no doubt whatever that in this instance I did actually hear, although from what direction it proceeded I found it impossible to say. A low and apparently distant but harsh, protracted, and most unusual screaming or grating sound, the exact counterpart of what my fancy had already conjured up for the dragon's unnatural shriek as described by the romancer. Oppressed as I certainly was upon the occurrence of this second and most extraordinary coincidence, by a thousand conflicting sensations in which wonder and extreme terror were predominant, I still retained sufficient presence of mind to avoid exciting, by any observation, the sensitive nervousness of my companion. I was by no means certain that he had noticed the sounds in question, although, assuredly, a strange alteration had during the last few minutes taken place in his demeanor. From a position fronting my own, he had gradually brought round his chair, so as to sit with his face to the door of the chamber, and thus I could but partially perceive his features, although I saw that his lips trembled as if he were murmuring inaudibly. His head had dropped upon his breast, yet I knew that he was not asleep from the wide and rigid opening of the eye as I caught a glance of it. Prin profile. The motion of his body, too, was at variance with this idea. He rocked from side to side with a gentle yet constant and uniform sway. Having rapidly taken notice of all this, I resumed the narrative of Sir Lancelot, which thus proceeded. And now the champion, having escaped from the terrible fury of the dragon, bethinking himself of the brazen shield and of the breaking up of the enchantment which was upon it, removed the carcass from out of the way before him and approached valorously over the silver pavement of the castle to where the shield was upon the wall, which ensooth it, feet upon the silver floor, with a mighty great and terrible ringing sound. No sooner had these syllables passed my lips than, as if a shield of brass had indeed at the moment fallen heavily upon a floor of silver, I became aware of a distinct, hollow, metallic, and clangorous, yet apparently muffled, reverberation. Completely unnerved, I leaped to my feet, but the measured rocking movement of Usher was undisturbed. I rushed to the chair in which he sat. His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. But as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person. A sickly smile quavered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried, and gibbering murmur, as is unconscious of my presence. Bending closely over him, I at length drank in the hideous import of his words. Not hear it, yes, 
I hear it and have heard it long, long, many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dared not, oh, pity me, miserable wretch that I am. I dared not, I, I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb, said I. Not that my senses were acute. I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them many, many days ago yet. I dared not, I dared not speak. And now, to-night, Ethelred, ha, ha, the breaking of the hermit's door, and the death-cry of the dragon, and the clangor of the shield, say, rather, the rendering of her coffin, and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison, and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault. Oh, whither shall I fly? Will she not be here anon? Is she not her in? My haste? Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman here, he sprang furiously to his feet and shrieked out his syllabus as if, in the effort, he were giving up his soul. Madman, I tell you that she now stands without the door. As if in superhuman energy of his utterance, there had been found the potency of a spell. The huge antique panels to which the speaker pointed threw slowly back upon the instant their ponderous and ebony jaws. It was the work of the rushing gust, but then without these doors there did stand the lofty and enshrouded figure of the lady, Madeline of Usher. There was blood upon her white robes in the evidence of some bitter struggles upon every portion of her emaciated frame. For a moment she remained trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold. Then, with a low, moaning cry, fell heavily inward upon the person of her brother, and her violent and now final death agonies bore him to the floor a corpse and a victim to the terrors he had anticipated. From that chamber and from that mansion I fled aghast. The storm was still abroad in all its wrath as I found myself crossing the old causeway. Suddenly there shot along the path a wild light, and I turned to see whence a gleam so unusual could have issued, for the vast house and its shadows were alone behind me. The radiance was that of the full setting, the blood-red moon, which now shone vividly through that once barely discernible fissure, of which I have before spoken, as extending from the roof of the building in a zigzag direction to the base. While I gazed, this fissure rapidly widened. There came a fierce breath of the whirlwind. The entire orb of the satellite burst at once upon my sight. My brain reeled as I saw the mighty walls rushing asunder. There was a long, tumultuous, shouting sound like the voice of a thousand waters, and the deep and dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly and silently over the fragments of the House of Usher. End of the Fall of the House of Usher Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com Recording by Nick Number 
The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2. Silence, a Fable. Alkman. The mountain pinnacles slumber, valleys, crags, and caves are silent. Listen to me, said the demon, as he placed his hand upon my head. The region of which I speak is a dreary region in Libya, by the borders of the river Zaire, and there is no quiet there, nor silence. The waters of the river have a saffron and sickly hue, and they flow not onwards to the sea, but palpitate forever and forever beneath the red eye of the sun, with a tumultuous and convulsive motion. For many miles on either side of the river's oozy bed is a pale desert of gigantic water-lilies. They sigh one unto the other in that solitude, and stretch towards the heaven their long and ghastly necks, and nod to and fro their everlasting heads. And there is an indistinct murmur which cometh out from among them like the rushing of subterrene water, and they sigh one unto the other. But there is a boundary to their realm, the boundary of the dark, horrible, lofty forest. There, like the waves about the Hebrides, the low underwood is agitated continually, but there is no wind throughout the heaven, and the tall primeval trees rock eternally hither and thither with a crashing and mighty sound, and from their high summits one by one drop everlasting dews, and at the roots strange poisonous flowers lie writhing in perturbed slumber, and overhead with a rustling and loud noise the gray clouds rush westwardly forever until they roll a cataract over the fiery wall of the horizon. But there is no wind throughout the heaven, and by the shores of the river Zaire there is neither quiet nor silence. It was night, and the rain fell, and falling it was rain, but having fallen it was blood. And I stood in the morass among the tall, and the rain fell upon my head, and the lilies sighed one unto the other in the solemnity of their desolation. And all at once the moon arose through the thin ghastly mist and was crimson in color, and mine eyes fell upon a huge gray rock which stood by the shore of the river, and was lighted by the light of the moon. And the rock was gray, and ghastly, and tall, and the rock was gray. Upon its front were characters engraven in the stone, and I walked through the morass of water-lilies until I came close unto the shore that I might read the characters upon the stone, but I could not decipher them. And I was going back into the morass, when the moon shone with a fuller red, and I turned and looked again upon the rock, and upon the characters, and the characters were desolation. And I looked upwards, and there stood a man upon the summit of the rock, and I hid myself among the water-lilies that I might discover the actions of the man. And the man was tall and stately in form, and was wrapped up from his shoulders to his feet in the toga of old Rome, and the outlines of his figure were indistinct, but his features were the features of a deity, for the mantle of the night, and of the mist, and of the moon, and of the dew, had left uncovered the features of his face. And his brow was lofty with thought, and his eye wild with care, and in the few furrows upon his cheek I read the fables of sorrow, and weariness, and disgust with mankind, and a longing after solitude. And the man sat upon the rock, and leaned his head upon his hand, and looked out upon the desolation. He looked down into the low, unquiet shrubbery, and up into the tall primeval trees, and up higher at the rustling heaven, and into the crimson moon. And I lay close within shelter of the lilies, and observed the actions of the man. And the man trembled in the solitude. But the night waned, and he sat upon the rock. And the man turned his attention from the heaven, and looked out upon the dreary river Zaire, and upon the yellow ghastly waters, and upon the pale legions of the water-lilies. And the man listened to the sighs of the water-lilies, and to the murmur that came up from among them. 
and I lay close within my covert, and observed the actions of the man, and the man trembled in the solitude. But the night waned, and he sat upon the rock. Then I went down into the recesses of the morass, and waited afar in among the wilderness of the lilies, and called on to the hippopotami which dwelt among the fens in the recesses of the morass. And the hippopotami heard my call, and came, with the behemoth, unto the foot of the rock, and roared loudly and fearfully beneath the moon. And I lay close within my covert, and observed the actions of the man. And the man trembled in the solitude. But the night waned, and he sat upon the rock. Then I cursed the elements with the curse of tumult, and a frightful tempest gathered in the heaven where, before, there had been no wind. And the heaven became livid with the violence of the tempest, and the rain beat upon the head of the man, and the floods of the river came down, and the river was tormented into foam, and the water lilies shrieked within their beds, and the forest crumbled before the wind, and the thunder rolled, and the lightning fell, and the rock rocked to its foundation. And I lay close within my covert and observed the actions of the man. And the man trembled in the solitude, but the night waned and he sat upon the rock. Then I grew angry and cursed with a curse of silence, the river and the lilies and the wind and the forest and the heaven and the thunder and the size of the water lilies. And they became accursed and were still. And the moon ceased to totter up its pathway to heaven, and the thunder died away, and the lightning did not flash, and the clouds hung motionless, and the waters sunk to their level and remained, and the trees ceased to rock, and the water lilies sighed no more, and the murmur was heard no longer from among them, nor any shadow of sound throughout the vast illimitable desert. And I looked upon the characters of the rock, and they were changed, and the characters were silence. And mine eyes fell upon the countenance of the man, and his countenance was wan with terror. And, hurriedly, he raised his head from his hand, and stood forth upon the rock, and listened. But there was no voice throughout the vast illimitable desert, and the characters upon the rock were silence. And the man shuddered, and turned his face away, and fled afar off in haste, so that I beheld him no more. Now there are fine tales in the volumes of the Magi, in the iron-bound, melancholy volumes of the Magi. Therein, I say, are glorious histories of the heaven, and of the earth, and of the mighty sea, and of the genii that overruled the sea, and the earth, and the lofty heaven. There was much lore, too, in the sayings which were said by the sibyls, and holy, holy things were heard of old by the dim leaves that trembled around Dodona. But as Allah liveth, that fable which the demon told me as he sat by my side in the shadow of the tomb, I hold to be the most wonderful of all. And as the demon made an end of his story, he fell back within the cavity of the tomb and laughed. And I could not laugh with the demon, and he cursed me because I could not laugh. And the lynx which dwelt forever in the tomb came out therefrom and lay down at the feet of the demon and looked at him steadily in the face. End of Silence a Fable Recording by Nick Number Recording by Nick Number The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2, The Mask of the Red Death The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores, with dissolution. 
the scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow-men and the whole seizure progress and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour but the prince prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious when his dominions were half depopulated he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys this was an extensive and magnificent structure the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste a strong and lofty wall girdled it in this wall had gates of iron the courtiers having entered brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts they resolved to leave means neither of ingress or egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatori, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these in security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, but first let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that protected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances, but in the western or black chamber the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. 
its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull heavy monotonous clang and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company and while the chimes of the clock yet rang it was observed that the giddiest grew pale and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows as if in confused reverie or meditation but when the echoes had fully ceased a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly the musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion and then after the lapse of sixty minutes which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies there came yet another chiming of the clock and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before but in spite of these things it was a gay and magnificent revel the tastes of the duke were peculiar he had a fine eye for colors and effects he disregarded the decora of mere fashion his plans were bold and fiery and his conceptions glowed with barbaric lustre there are some who would have thought him mad his followers felt that he was not it was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not he had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders be sure they were grotesque there were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm much of what has been seen since in ernani there were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments there were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions there was much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps, and, anon, there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet and then for a moment all is still and all is silent save the voice of the clock the dreams are stiff frozen as they stand but the echoes of the chime die away they have endured but an instant and a light half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart and now again the music swells and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods but to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven there are now none of the maskers who venture for the night is waning away and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-coloured panes and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls and to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments but these other apartments were densely crowded and in them beat feverishly the heart of life and the revel went whirlingly on until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock and then the music ceased as i have told and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before but now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock and thus it happened perhaps that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who revelled 
and thus too it happened perhaps that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before and the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise then finally of terror of horror and of disgust in an assembly of phantasms such as i have painted it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation in truth the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited but the figure in question had outherited herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum there are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion even with the utterly lost to whom life and death are equally jests there are matters of which no jest can be made the whole company indeed seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed the figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave the mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat and yet all this might have been endured if not approved by the mad revellers around but the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the red death his vesture was dabbled in blood and his broad brow with all the features of the face was besprinkled with the scarlet horror when the eyes of prince prospero fell upon the spectral image which with a slow and solemn movement as if more fully to sustain its role stalked to and fro among the waltzers he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder of either terror or distaste but in the next his brow reddened with rage who dares he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery seize him and unmask him that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements it was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the prince prospero as he uttered these words they rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly for the prince was a bold and robust man and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand it was in the blue room where stood the prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side at first as he spoke there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder who at the moment was also near at hand and now with deliberate and stately step made closer approach to the speaker but from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party there were found none who put forth hand to seize him so that unimpeded he passed within a yard of the prince's person and while the vast assembly as if with one impulse shrank from the centres of the room to the walls he made his way uninterruptedly but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first through the blue chamber to the purple through the purple to the green through the green to the orange through this again to the white and even thence to the violet ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him it was then however that the prince prospero maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice rushed hurriedly through the six chambers while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all he bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure when the latter having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer there was a sharp cry and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the prince prospero 
Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and, seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revellers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall, and the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. End of The Mask of the Red Death Recording by Nick Number Recording by Alan Winterout. The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2. The Cask of Amontillado. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as I best could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You, who know so well the nature of my soul, will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitively settled, but the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato, although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared. He prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity, to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmary, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. It was about dusk, one evening during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting, party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, "'My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you are looking today! But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts.' "'How?' said he. "'Amontillado? A pipe? Impossible! And in the middle of the carnival?' "'I have my doubts,' I replied, "'and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter.' You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado? 
and I must satisfy them. Amontillado! As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchese. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me. Lucchese cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no. I would not oppose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchese? I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado. You have been imposed upon. And as for Lucchese, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking, Fortunato possessed himself of my arm. Putting on a mask of black silk, and drawing a rocolaire closely about my person, I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home. They had absconded to make merry in honor of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning, and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew, to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent, and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. The pipe, said he. It is farther on, said I, but observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls. He turned towards me, and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication. Nitre? he asked at length. Nitre, I replied. How long have you had that cough? <coughs> my poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It, it is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision, we will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once I was. You are a man to be missed. For me it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there's Lucchese. Enough, he said. The cold is a mere nothing. It will not kill me. I shall not die of cough. True, true, I replied. And indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily, but you should use all proper caution. A draught of this Madoc will defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mould. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly, while the bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose around us, and I to your long life. He again took my arm, and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door in a field azure. 
The foot crushes a serpent rampant whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lacessit. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the Madoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones, with casks and puncheons intermingling, into the innermost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said, see it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough... It is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draft of the Madoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend, he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A Mason, I replied. A sign, he said. It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my rocalaire. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces, but let us proceed to the Amontillado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak, and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, descended, passed on, and descending again, arrived in a deep crypt, in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious, its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead, in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth, the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess in depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no especial use in itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavored to pry into the depths of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucchese, he is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend, as he stepped unsteadily forward while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, 
it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. Pass your hand, I said, over the wall. You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my powder. The Amontillado! ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied. The Amontillado. As I said these words, I busied myself among the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of my masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had in great measure worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long and obstinate silence. I laid the second tier, and the third, and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes, during which, that I might hearken to it with more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel, and finished without interruption the fifth, sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and, holding the flambeau over the mason work, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess. But the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed. I aided. I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamorer grew still. It was now midnight and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tier. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke indeed, an, an excellent jest. We will have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the palazzo? the lady Fortunato and the rest, let us be gone. Yes, I said, let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor! Yes, I said, for the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud, Fortunato! No answer. 
I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in return only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry, I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century, no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requisat. End of The Cask of Amontillado Recording by Alan Winteroud Boomcoach.blogspot.com